Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. Welcome back to our mini-series here on the book of Daniel, who, while he is a major prophet, is in a shorter duration than you see with the likes of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. So today, we're going to go ahead and continue where we left off. We're going to start here in chapter 4 of Daniel, which isn't written by Daniel. In fact, uh, this king here writing, King Nebuchadnezzar writing the fourth chapter of Daniel, he may very well be the only Gentile after the establishment of the state of Israel and Judah, the only Gentile to write Bible in the Old Testament. Who would have thought? But uh, let's go ahead and start here in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and beheld... A tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heavens. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
So you might notice some interesting things here. The book of Daniel is not written just once. Daniel did not, towards the end of his life, just decide, I'm going to write everything that I've gone through here for the past 60, 70 years. Instead, the book of Daniel is kind of a chronicle. It's almost like a journal. So chapters 1 through 3 are a narrative. They tell us, uh, here's how Daniel and his buddies, uh, Rakshak and Benny, how they get into uh, Babylon. And then it talks about how they kind of rose the ranks, rose through the ranks of the wise men and the quote-unquote magicians, and learned all of the Babylonian customs. To where, well, now all of a sudden they're interpreting dreams and holding real authority in the Babylonian kingdom. Then it shows this being tested in the third chapter with uh, Nebuchadnezzar demanding everybody bow to his big golden statue. Then it switches to a letter format in the fourth chapter. Now you might notice similar language, right? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar here, when he says, for instance, in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Or in verse 7, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And you might read that and go, hey, wait a second. In chapter 2 here, it said, uh, <clears throat> ah, yes, it said that the enchanters, the magicians, and the astrologers in chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, hold on. Verse 2 of chapter 2, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. How is it that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar here has such similar language to Daniel? And there are some biblical critics that claim that this is Daniel making up Nebuchadnezzar's letter. But it's not so simple. If the prophet Daniel really did live in Babylon, which I believe it, this is holy scripture, he lived in Babylon learning how they spoke, how they wrote, how, uh, how Aramaic works, and how to speak with their naming conventions. It's little wonder then that he would learn the royal court's way of speaking and writing. So, of course, there's similarities there between how Daniel writes and how Nebuchadnezzar writes. But also, Nebuchadnezzar, in this chapter, he is still a polytheist. He's still talking about the spirit of the, quote-unquote, holy gods in verse 8. Something that Daniel, if he really wrote this, instead of just including it in his book, if he wrote it, that would have been uh, sinful. Right? It would be blasphemous to even write a sentence like, there is more than one God. To, to a young child, a Judah, you, just, you don't even consider that. And there's a reason that when rabbinic Judaism started going on the rise, instead of saying God's holy name, they would say Hashem, the name. <laughs> they, they would even have certain transcripts of the Old Testament where instead of God's actual name, it would just say Hashem the name, written there, the same way we have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D for the divine name. So with that kind of reverence here, it's extremely unlikely that Daniel would have decided, oh, I'm going to forge this. No, instead, this truly is a letter from Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, that happened at some point during Daniel's career, while Nebuchadnezzar was still alive, about his experience with these dreams. And it signals to us that now Daniel, the prophet, having gone through all his life and he's collecting all of his writings, as he's looking through this, he's saying, I need to include this. This this puts us up in kind of a, a shift in pitch, a shift in tone, a shift in genre here from history and narrative uh, to actual prophecy. And not just actual prophecy, but the kind of didactic prophecy that has real consequences, real effects on the world around it. This is Daniel's signal here that what he says to King Nebuchadnezzar in the fourth chapter, uh, everything after that, all of his prophecies after this are going to be real and binding for people, just as real and just as binding as his uh, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is for him. So let's continue here in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king." who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion with, be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. But, you know, it seems to me that this uh, this ordeal that Nebuchadnezzar goes through it does fit in with a larger theme in the book of Daniel. And it's something that uh, the prophet wants us to understand and emphasize that God is truly in charge. Now, for the curious among us listening to this, uh, you might want to write this down. It's from the, it's a tablet found in the, the uh, British Museum here. So you might want to write down this number. Number B M. Three, four, one, one, three. S P two one three. Uh, published by A. K. Grayson in 1975. It is an actual account, unfortunately very, very fragmentary, regarding King Nebuchadnezzar's illness. Here's what we have translated of it that we were able to translate. Nebuchadnezzar considered his life appeared of no value to him. And the Babylonian speaks bad counsel to Evil Merodach. Then he gives an entirely different order, but he does not heed the word from his lips, the courtiers. He does not show love to son and daughter. Family and clan do not exist. His attention was not directed toward promoting the welfare of Esagil and Babylon. He praised to the Lord of Lords. He raised his hands in supplication. He weeps bitterly to Marduk, the great gods. His prayers go forth to, and then the text uh, breaks off from there. So, if we ask what God did to Nebuchadnezzar, we find that, well, first and foremost, God drove the man nuts. He, he made him listless unable to really communicate, not able to give coherent orders. He kind of sat around for a while and maybe was expelled from the palace until he had actually recovered, having learned, as Daniel would have us underline and emphasize for the entirety of this book, that God is in charge, not humans. Now, another thing 
that comes to our ears as we hear about Nebuchadnezzar's madness is that word that kind of rings in our ears and makes us very, very curious. The word is watchers. Um, In verse 17 of chapter 4, it says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to end to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Who are the watchers? Now, some of us maybe have, since we're talking about literature that is uh, separate from uh, normal history, right? And we're talking about ancient Near Eastern history in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's madness with this fragment. There's another book that some people want to get into called the Book of Enoch, which discusses these beings called the Watchers. Well, okay. The Watchers do appear to be an angelic host um, that serves as kind of a uh, an inner circle for God, for the Father. They dine with him, they speak with him, they give their advice to the omniscient God who rules over everything. It, there's a lot of mystery there. But for everybody listening to this, if you have questions about the Watchers, I wouldn't necessarily think that the book of Enoch is where you'd find the answers for it. Even though, yes, this angelic species called the Watchers, that is uh, prominent in the book of Enoch. But we don't have a 100% guarantee that Enoch is scripture. We do for the rest of the Bible. And, and yes, there is one verse of Enoch that is considered canon because Jude quotes it. But more importantly, is the reason that these watchers are sending this message to King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, we'll, we'll read it again. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. For what? To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. So, here and now we see that yes, it's to show Nebuchadnezzar that God is in charge, not the Watchers. If the Watchers truly are holy and good angels that serve our Lord and our God with their whole angelic beings, then it stands to reason that, well... There's not much that we can do to learn about them. And even then, they're not in charge the same way that God is. It is interesting that they make a decree. But if they make a decree, it is because God has delegated that authority to them to make a decree. And that fits in, again, here with Daniel's theme. The dream fits in with the rest of this book. I'm sure that other texts and stuff were written by Daniel. He probably wrote many letters, many interpretations of dreams and service to the king and everything like that. But he collects everything in this book for the sake of telling us that God is in charge over all events, political events, over the events of our lives. He is there to teach us and to show us and to control what's going to happen to us. He controls our destiny.
But with that said, I don't think there's much else that we can show here for the rest of this chapter. Let's go ahead and move on to Daniel chapter 5. And starting in verse 1, it, uh, it starts with the words, King Belshazzar. Now we're going to get into a bit more archaeology here after we read this uh, chapter. But keep in mind, King Belshazzar is a co-regent. He is not the only king of Babylon at this time. He is kind of like the vice president in charge while the president is away. But with that being said, let's go ahead and read this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So immediately here we see that there's a big no-no, an oopsie here that uh, King Belshazzar, uh, and he commits. He's deciding to show off the bounties of the conquest of the uh, Babylonian Empire here, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Judah and everything that he got from Jerusalem. And of course they have to bring in the golden vessels that were brought out that were from the temple, God's holy temple. These are holy things, holy artifacts. Oops. And now, in the midst of this, instead of drinking from these vessels, they uh, decide to use them as an occasion for uh, multiple god worship, polytheism, idolatry. I mean, there's, there's not many good ways to see it, and he's having the all sorts of people drinking from this, including his concubines and prostitutes. He's making a mockery of God. So, with that being said, let's continue in verse 5 and see what happens. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, 
in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So this is clearly after Nebuchadnezzar has died. This is, in fact, very close to the beginning of the Persian Empire. Daniel is a very old man. And so, during this time, Daniel is almost forgotten. A king named Nabonidus takes over around the time of the death of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nabonidus has his own thoughts on religion, and that excludes Daniel. We'll, we'll talk about Nabonidus here in a moment. But the prophet Daniel does show up when he's brought in. Thankfully, he's not dead. And when he is brought up, well, let's go ahead and read in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have brought in before me to read this writing, and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, there is archaeological evidence of this. There was actually a, a kind of metal coin that was found for proclaiming this challenge. Uh, whoever can decipher the writing on the wall gets X, Y, and Z prize. It's very scratched up, very old thing, but this was found that Daniel was summoned and brought to King Belshazzar probably a decent amount of time after, uh, after he first saw the writing on the wall. But nevertheless, let's go ahead and continue here in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, 
and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Pares, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So, let's get into a little bit of history here. It used to be that the existence of Belshazzar was, well, more or less denied. There were people that said, oh, the Bible is just making stuff up here. This is legendary things because Nabonidus clearly was not an actual king. Or well, he, was, he was the last king of Babylon and Belshazzar, we don't even see his name in most historical accounts. But then, of course, they found them. And then an explanation was found. I'm going to go ahead and read this from uh, Ancient Near Eastern Texts, or The Ancient Near East, an anthology of texts and pictures by James B. Pritchard. This is uh, something called Nabonidus and his God. This is the last of the official kings of Babylon, who was co-regent with Belshazzar up until the end of the Babylonian Empire. Quote, This is the great miracle of sin that none of the other gods and goddesses knew how to achieve. That has not happened to the country from the days of old that the people of the country have not observed nor written down on clay tablets to be preserved for eternity. That you, Sin, the lord of all the gods and goddesses residing in heaven, have come down from heaven to me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon. For me, Nabonidus, the lonely one who has nobody, who has nobody, in whose text my heart was no thought of kingship. The gods and goddesses prayed to sin, and sin called me to kingship. And midnight he, sin, made me have a dream, and said in the dream as follows, Rebuild speedily, Ehulul, the temple of sin in Haran, and I will hand over to you all the countries. Okay. Why is this important? Well, first off, the national god of Babylon was Marduk. If you ever read texts like the Enuma Elish, most of them are uh, legitimizing the rule of Marduk, the national god of the Babylonians, over all the supposed gods and goddesses. The Babylonians loved Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar was considered like a ruler in place of Marduk. Everybody was all about this god called Marduk until Nabonidus gets this funny feeling that there's another god out there called Sin or Shin, that he must rebuild the Temple of Shin out all the way up north in Haran, which is, I believe, in modern-day Armenia. So he's going to the far north, to either Turkey or Armenia here, and he's rebuilding. He decides to go on a trip. Let's keep reading here from Nabonidus and his god. 
But the citizens of Babylon, Borsippa, Nippur, Ur, Uruk, and Larsa, the administrators and the inhabitants of the urban centers of Babylonia acted evil, careless, and even sinned against his great divine power, having not yet experienced the awfulness of the wrath of the divine crescent, the king of all gods. They disregarded uh, his rights, and there was much irreligious and disloyal talk. They devoured one another like dogs, caused a disease and hunger to appear among them. He, sin, decimated the inhabitants of the country. But he made me leave my city Babylon on the road to Tema, Dadanu, Padaku, Hebra, Yahidu, even as far as Yatribu. For ten years I was moving around among these cities and did not enter my own city, Babylon. Upon the order of sin, the king of all gods, the lord of lords, which the gods and goddesses living in heaven then executed upon the order of the divine crescent, sin. They appointed Shamash, Ishtar, Adad, and Nurgle to watch over my well-being. Thereupon, in one and the same year, twice, to wit in the month of Nisanu, as well as Tashritu, the people of Babylonia and upper Syria could collect the product of the open country in the sea. And throughout all these years, without exception, Adad, the uh, Dick Warden of Heaven, and Nether World provided them upon the command of sin with rain even in the height of the summer. In the following months, Simanu, Duuzi, Abu, and Alulu. And so they could bring me, in order to support me, their abundance without hardship. Upon the command of Sin and Ishtar, the Lady of Battle, without whom neither hostilities nor reconciliations can occur in the country and no battle can be fought, extended her protection over them. And the king of Egypt, the Medes and the land of the Arabs, all the hostile kings, were sending me messages of reconciliation and friendship. As to the land of the Arabs, which is the eternal enemy of Babylonia, in which was always ready to rob and carry off its possession, Nurgle broke their weapons upon the order of sin, and they all bowed down at my feet. Shamash, the lord of oracular decisions, without whom no prediction can be uttered, or literally no mouth can be opened or shut, made in execution of a command of his own father, the divine crescent, the words in the hearts of the people of Babylonia and upper Syria, who are in my charge. Turn again to me, so that they began to serve me and to execute my command throughout all the distant mountain regions and inaccessible paths I was moving about. Then the predicted term of ten years arrived. It happened on the very day which the king of the gods, the divine crescent, had, in the dream predicted, the seventeenth day of Tashritu, of which it is said in the uh, Hemerologies, a day on which sin is gracious. O sin, lord of the gods, whose name on the first day of his appearance is Weapon of Anu, you who are able to illuminate, or touch with light, all the heaven, and to crush the netherworld, who hold in your text the hands, the power of the office of the Anu office, <laughs> who wield all the power of the Enlil office, who have taken over the power of the Ea office, holding thus in your text your, his own hand over all the heavenly powers, Enlil among the gods, king of kings, lord of lords, whose command they do not contradict, you who do not have to repeat your order, of whose great awe the heaven and the netherworld are full, with whose sheen heaven and netherworld are covered, who can do anything without you. You place, you place religious awe of your great Godhead in the heart of any country in which you desire to dwell, and its foundation remains steadfast forever. You remove awe toward you from any country which you choose to destroy, and you overthrow it forever." You are the one whose utterance all the gods and goddesses living in heaven observe. 
They execute the command of the Divine Crescent, their own Father, who wields the powers of heaven and another world, without whose exalted command, which is given in heaven every day. No country can rest in security, and no light can be in the world. The gods shake like reeds, and the Anunnaki quiver. Those who bow down before his divine command, which cannot be changed. Uh, Before that moment, my visits to the diviner, or the dream expert for the interpretation of signs, did not cease. But whenever I lay down to sleep, my dreams at night were confused. Until the word came true, the time was full, the right moment had arrived, which sin had foretold. Then I dispatched a messenger from Tema, and he went to Babylon, my lordly city. When they saw him, they took gifts and presents before him. The kings of the nearby regions came up to Babylon to kiss his, or my feet, and those far off heard about it, and were filled with awe of sin's great divine power. The gods and goddesses who had fled and withdrawn returned to give blessings. Then my good fortune was found again, and the victims used for the decisions of the diviner. I arranged for my followers in the distant mountain region to live in great plenty and abundance, and I I myself took the road home undisturbed. Thereupon I carefully executed the command of Sin's great godhead. I was not careless nor negligent, but set in motion people from Babylon and Upper Syria, from the border of Egypt, on the Upper Sea and the Lower Sea, all those whom Sin, the king of the gods, had entrusted to me. Thus I built anew the Ehulul, the temple of Sin, and completed this work. I then led in procession Sin, Ningal, Nusku, and Sardununa from Shuwana in Babylon, my royal city, and brought them in joy and happiness into the temple, installing them on a permanent dive. I made abundant offerings before them and lavished gifts on them. I filled Ehulul with happiness and made its personnel rejoice. Thus I fulfilled the command of Sin, the king of the gods, the lord of lords who dwells in heaven, whose name surpasses that of all the other gods in heaven of Shamash, who is installed by him, Nusku, Ishtar, Adad, and Nurgle, who have only executed the command of the Divine Crescent, who surpasses them all. Whenever I armed myself with weapons and set my mind to to do battle, it was solely to execute the command of the Divine Crescent. Hence, whoever you be, whom Sin will later on name to kingship, and whom he will call my son, do visit the sacred places of Sin, who dwells in heaven, whose command cannot be changed, and whose order needs no repetition, and he will assist you with his weapon in battle. That is uh, Nabonidus and his God. Now, funnily enough, this, uh, this text was recovered in 1956. In where? In the Great Mosque in Haran. The two stelae of Nabonidus were there, uh, almost used as paving stones here. Well, it explains a move. And it's very interesting that, well, the international symbol for Islam is the crescent moon. And here Nabonidus makes reference to the great crescent. So Nabonidus gets this idea in his head that there's another god out there. He's been listening to his father, Nebuchadnezzar, speak about this god who is above all gods. And who rules everything. And he learns that it's not Marduk, the national god of the Babylonians. So he starts getting these little messages from a being calling itself Sin. Or calling itself the Great Crescent. And he decides to follow this command to build a temple for Sin in Haran. Which, uh, if you remember from our History of Israel course, uh, Haran is where, well, Haran is named after one of the uh, relatives of Abraham. 
And it's where Abraham's father Terah died. Abraham left for Canaan after Terah died in Haran. But doing this upsets the apple cart. All the priests that are well established and very powerful in Babylon, they don't like very much that Nabonidus wants to toss up the kingdom, make it go all topsy-turvy here, change their religion, have uh, Sin be the new chief god, and to claim that all their national heroes like Marduk and Nurgle and Ea, the Lord of the Depths, or Lord of the Deeps, if you know the reference there, that all of them are actually serving this mysterious god that is suddenly king of all the gods. Hmm. Interesting. So he spends ten years, ten years away from Babylon and away from his throne to go collect resources from different colonies of the Babylonian Empire and making sure that they have plenty of grain and money to give to him to King Nabonidus to build up this temple. During that time, Belshazzar is in charge as a co-regent. He is either the brother of Nabonidus or he is the uh, the son of Nabonidus. Uh, in Daniel chapter 5, whenever uh, Belshazzar is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar, it could mean literal son, as in Nebuchadnezzar is his real father, or it could mean like grandson. That's a little unclear. But what we do know at this time is that Belshazzar was the second in command of the kingdom, uh, being the other crown prince. And so he names Daniel the third in the kingdom. Uh, from verse <clears throat> sorry, verse 16 here, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writings and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Nabonidus was the head king, but he was off making a temple somewhere in Haran, up to the north. And Belshazzar, was, he can't really claim to be the head king of Babylon without starting a civil war, even if Nabonidus is away. So, of course, Belshazzar names Daniel third. This is also one of the reasons here in a text called The Fall of Babylon, it said that the king, or Nabonidus, was not in Babylon for the time that uh, Cyrus invades. So, that's Daniel chapter 5. God is eminently upset that, of course, uh, <clears throat> Belshazzar here makes a mockery and a blasphemy of his articles of the house of God, the temple. And he does not believe in God the way Nebuchadnezzar began to believe in God. Instead, while Nabonidus is out going somewhere, off going crazy with some high-ranking demon, possibly Allah, here, it's made evidently clear that Belshazzar has fallen under the same kind of arrogance that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had. But while Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God, Belshazzar was not. And he would not listen to the message of God for him. And so God removes the kingdom. The Persians and the Medes come in. They dig out a trench, emptying out part of the river Euphrates, and invade in a nearly bloodless war. I believe there was just about one battle there in the Babylonian Empire that they won very handily, and that was it. From then on, the Persians simply took over 
and the Babylonian Empire didn't make it past, oh, 70 or 80 years. So, but now, Darius the Mede comes in. Now, some people have, uh, have brought this up. Darius the Mede is not mentioned in any other ancient document. Now, in verse 31 here, it says Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Uh, however, this is probably the name of a governor here of Babylon under Cyrus. Um, but it is also true that Cyrus, his mother was a Mede and didn't really give him the name Cyrus. He could have gotten the name Cyrus after a certain reputation. There's some mystery in there, but unfortunately, if you ever ask about the archaeological evidence for a lot of this stuff, we have 10% of 10% of the all the documents that were written during this time. So the Bible is trustworthy on this. There really was a Darius the Mede here that took over, and likely it was the same individual as Cyrus, but with the later, later name attached. But under Persian rule, well... Let's see if anything was different for Daniel. Daniel being a very old man at this point. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel at this time, you see, he has a reputation now as being a monotheist in a place full of polytheism. Something interesting about this, though, Daniel has this reputation and his reputation spans and goes across the entirety of the kingdom. Now, for you listening out here, do you know, generally speaking, what the religion of the Zoroastrian Empire was? Sorry, I gave it away when I said it. The Persian Empire's chief religion was Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster was a figure that supposedly lived around the same time as the prophet Daniel. And he, too, preached a kind of monotheism. You see, Zoroastrianism... It's named after Zoroaster, uh, used to be called Zarathustra. That's about 6th and 7th century BC. In fact, I would say that our archaeologists and historians really could do some good work if they actually asked the question, did Zarathustra even exist? Or was Zoroaster a real person? Or are we talking about the... Medo-Persian priestly caste kind of trying to co-opt a lot of what Daniel was saying about there being only one God. Because in Zoroastrianism, there's one God who is over everything, and then there are two forces 
that go against each other. Ahura Mazda and uh, Ara Ainu, I believe, is the second one, the bad one, the bad force in the universe. And there's this kind of dualism that keeps going between the force of light and the force of darkness, a figure for, well, Christ versus the devil, until the end, in which uh, the bad guy, Ainu, is slain and everybody is able to live in peace, or at least those who aligned themselves with the good side. Yes, it's that on the nose whenever you get into Zoroastrianism. But Zoroastrianism, uh, later on called Manichaeanism when it spread over to the Roman Empire, it does have a lot of ancient pagan polytheist ritual. And at this time, as we can see here in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is so popular, you know, again, his title being a quote-unquote president with a plan to set him over the entirety of the kingdom because of his wisdom and his, uh, his preaching, basically. The man is a prophet and one of the chiefest of wise men. That's causing a stir the same way Nabonidus caused a stir when he told people, hey, I'm going to go find this god that's over everything and build a temple to him in Haran. They've seen this kind of unrest before and they want to stop it. So we continue here in verse 6, because they know they can't assault him by his character. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Ah, so here's their strategy. They want Daniel out of the picture. They want him dead. And if, uh, well, if they can't let his god have reign over everything, they can try another form of polytheism in a Caesar-esque worship. Let's, let's have everybody worship you and pray to you in your general direction. And if they don't, well, it'll only be 30 days. So we're not seeing civil war here. Well, it's okay, king. Only 30 days. But if anybody's praying to any other god, we'll cast him into the lion's den. So we continue on in verse 10 here. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, 
Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persian that no injunction or ordinance of the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you see, you see what I mean. Zoroastrianism takes on in the Persian Empire, and it just so happens that this is the time in, uh, that Zoroaster is supposed to have come to power, or at least to prominence in the Persian Empire, with a kind of monotheism that eerily sounds just a just a lot more biblical than you would expect from a pagan empire like Persia. And so, after that, Daniel is released from the lion's den. Now, after this, next week, when we get into the rest of the book of Daniel, there's going to be actual hard prophecy that deals with the future of things. There's going to be prophecy that deals, well, with us. And even more so, and more importantly, with Christ himself. But it is up until this point that the prophet Daniel has been focusing on narrative and history, wanting us to see where he lived and how life was for him. Underlining, exclamation, exclaiming, underlining, putting it in bold and italics and 28-point font, Times New Roman, that God is in charge. 
and at humanity for all the decrees of the kings and for all the glories of the kingdom, they cannot surpass or supersede God's rule. And then, again, starting next week, God's going to tell us through Daniel what this God really intends for the rest of the world with regards to what he does with this rule. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you as we go through the rest of this week. May it prosper. God bless. Amen.